Howdy folks, and thanks for tuning in to the eighth episode of Rediscover the Winds, a Wyoming history podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kirsten Blyle, the collections manager for the Dubois Museum Wind River Historical Center. And I'm Zach Larson, the new site director for the Riverton Museum. Both Kirsten and I work for the Fremont County Museum System located in the heart of West Central Wyoming. Our county museum system has three museums in it. The Riverton Museum, where Zach works, the Dubois Museum, Wind River Historical Center, where I work, and the Fremont County Pioneer Museum, where last month's guest speaker, Randy Wise, works. All of our museums focus on telling the stories of the early frontier life with a mix of Native American heritage, natural history, and general regional history. Using artifacts from our three museums, interviews with experts, and a load of historical research, we're here to discover, and in some cases rediscover, the quirky, the heart-wrenching, the fascinating history of Fremont County, Wyoming, and the American West. We're coming to you from the dark, cool attic of the Riverton Museum. We share a desk with a microfilm reader so old that we're not sure if it's an artifact or a tool that is in use today. We're surrounded by books, newspapers, and documents that cover the area's history in excruciating detail. What better location could there be for a podcast recording studio for an episode about Riverton's history? Last month, Lander, once known as the Apple City, was the apple of our eye as we visited with Randy Wise, site director of the Fremont County Museum, or Fremont County Pioneer Museum, about that town's industrial history. This month, it's about damn time as we talk about Riverton's start on the promise of irrigation. It's also Riverton's turn to shine, or glow in the dark, whatever the case may be, as we talk about the atomic age in Fremont County's largest city. Okay, so Riverton kind of gets its start several decades before there was a Riverton. During the fur trapping period, it was the site of two rendezvous. William Ashley was a a fur trader, and he popularized the the rendezvous as a concept. And in case you're wondering, rendezvous is an old French word that means the Z is silent. So the fur trade was big business in the Rocky Mountains and in the Intermountain West as uh, beaver pelts were converted basically into hats and sent over to Europe, which was, you know, it was extremely popular and extremely lucrative industry. So in order to have these fur trappers working more and more year-round, instead of having them travel to uh, an already existing fort or a trading post to exchange their, their furs and to, you know, to buy more supplies, once a year, the uh, Rocky Mountain Fur Company and later the American Fur Company would bring mule trains full of supplies out west to a predetermined spot. And then all of the trappers in the region would meet at that spot and it would be, they'd have fun and games and everyone was just, it was just kind of a big, a big party while everybody gathered together. Um, there were, you know, Native American groups that came and traded. Uh, and it was, it was a great time. So there were two of those in Riverton, one in 1830 and then one in 1838. That was, you know, well before Riverton was even a Riverton back before it was a town. You know, obviously, like in the last episode, we talked about how there was a, a substantial Native American population that lived in the area. But Riverton as a town really gets its start. Uh, it has its roots going clear back to 1887 with the Dawes Act. And the Dawes Act, in case you're struggling to remember your 11th grade American history. Is that when we do American history, 11th grade? I should know. I used to teach American history. I was going to say, that's that's when I learned about it. 11th okay. grade, advanced 11th grade. placement U.S. history. Oh, I did not go to advanced placement regardless uh the dawes act the premise was basically that we were that the u.s government was going to establish individual native american landowners 
um, try to break the tribes of their tradition of having basically communal land and try to assimilate them into the, the Euro-American culture. And another big advantage from the eyes of the people pushing this act was that it would free up a lot of land on reservations for white settlement. Basically, if you agreed to sell your land under the Dawes Act, you would get to keep as your own some some amount of acreage that you you know that was yours, and then the rest of that land could be sold off to homesteaders, to white settlers, whatever the case may be. So that's kind of the the framework that we're working in. In 1905, things were were pretty bleak on the Wind River Indian Reservation. Within about the last decade or so, Chief Washakie of the Shoshone Tribe and Black Cole and Sharp Nose, who were major leaders of the Northern Arapaho Tribe, had had passed away. Uh, the Shoshone had ceded the southern half of the reservation in 1874, and then they sold some of the northern part of the reservation, the part that now contains Thermopolis, off in 1896. And the reservation was just continuing to struggle. They, um, a lot of the people were were sick. A lot of the people had inadequate food. It was just, just not a good time to be on the reservation. And they basically came to the the conclusion um, that they that it would be better to have land or better to have food than it would be to have land. So they basically agreed to sell everything pretty much north of the Wind River. Um, and in exchange, there was going to be irrigation projects that would base, that would help the tribes out. Um, the people who stayed on allotments would be able to take advantage of this. They'd have water rights. They'd be able to farm, and it was going to be great. But these plans were slow to materialize. Homesteaders and Native Americans that stayed on the allotments were charged for water rights in an, in an irrigation system that didn't exist yet. There was a lot of problems getting that irrigation system up and up and running. The Diversion Dam was finally built in 1923, almost two decades after the area was open for settlement. And the company that was responsible for that, the Wyoming Central Irrigation Company, folded in 1928. And that's when the Bureau of Reclamation took over and things finally started to improve a little bit. So finally, in the 1930s, new homesteaders started to come to the area um, and, and farming really started to finally take off all over the Wind River Valley. So I have a quick question here. Yeah. So what was it about this area? What was it about Riverton before it was Riverton that made it so tempting that people wanted to have a rendezvous here, that people wanted to live here? Um, I think that the potential, at least for living here, the potential for irrigation is pretty good because the Wind River is, you know, a major river and the soil is good that, you know, it once once it's properly irrigated, it actually lends itself pretty well to to agriculture. Um, as far as the rendezvous, they, I mean, they just kind of had them in different places. You know, there was there was a lot of trapping activity not too far from here. So it just gave trappers that were working in the area an opportunity to, to be closer, I guess. I mean, there were there were rendezvous all over the, the Intermountain West. I, I'm um, assuming that areas for rendezvous had to be easy to find because yeah. you can be like, oh, let's meet at that one mountain by that one yep. place. You know. Close to landmark. So, so Riverton's, you know, on the confluence of some rivers. It's just it's where it gets its name. So it was a, a pretty logical place to, uh, to have a rendezvous. Okay. So anyway, 1830s, homesteaders start to show up. 1930s? 1930s, not 1830s. <laughs> 1930s, homesteaders start to show up. And eventually portions that, a lot, well, a lot of the land that was open for white settlement was never actually sold or homesteaded. And um, that got returned to the, to the, uh, the tribes, ceded back to the reservation. So... A relatively small percentage, actually, of the reservation and ended up being allotted, and, and most of it ended up going back. So that was 
you know, 1930s irrigation for a couple of decades is the town's major industry. So, so agriculture and then sheep herding. I know Lander was really big in sheep herding, but Riverton had some sheep herders or in the areas surrounding it, didn't they? They did. Um, prominently, J.B. Oakey, who lived out in the Lost Cabin area, basically built a sheep herding empire. We're going to talk about him, I think, later on. Probably. In the year. Um, sheep herding was a big deal. You know, cattle has always been a, a part of Wyoming's agriculture as well. But for the time being, we're going to move on to something that's a little bit... That really built Riverton into the city that it is today. And without this industry, uh, Riverton would not, it would probably be, you know, smaller than Lander. Um, and that is, of course, the uranium industry. We're going to just jump forward a few decades. Everybody knows that in 1945, the United States basically ended World War I by, with the atomic bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima in Japan. Prior to that, people theorized about the potential that, that atomic power had, but it wasn't so visible on a global stage. So shortly after that, uh, in, in 1949, the Soviet Union detonated its first test atomic weapon called Joe one and a nuclear arms race was on. In addition to that, the U.S. government was promising all sorts of, of wonderful stuff that the, the atom could do. You know, there's stuff that talks about how, like, we don't have to worry about winter anymore because we can build atomic suns above our fields that will keep our crops warm year round. And yeah, radiation sounds like a, a great thing, idea. But we'll figure that out with time. We were going to have atomic powered trains and atomic powered cars. You buy a car and it has the fuel it needs for the life of the car because it's it's atomic powered. I mean, it's it's almost impossible to overstate just how this atomic culture was, how pervasive the idea was that atomic power was just going to be the panacea for all of the world's woes. It was basically going to end shortage of everything. And that was the promise. In addition to that, the Atomic Energy Commission, which was the civilian arm of the United States government that was basically set up to oversee all things nuclear. <coughs> Should have brought my water up here. Too late for Too that. Too late for that. What, you mean atomic power wouldn't get rid of all of our thirsts? No. I mean, maybe it would. Well, it's like that old joke that if you uh, teach a man how to build a fire, he'll be warm for a night. But if you set a man on fire, he'll be warm for the rest of his life. But Anyway, <laughs> the, the Atomic Energy Commission had basically set up itself as the sole purchaser of atomic materials, uranium being the most important and the most common. And they gave healthy rewards for anybody who found new viable deposits of uranium. Basically, if you found a deposit of uranium that had not been mined yet. They a, a, Once you sent some amount of, of ore in to be, you know, to production, the AEC would cut you a $10,000 check, which is roughly $95,000 in today's money. So, so they were paying people to go looking for and finding uranium deposits. Yeah. So, I mean, Geiger counters were hot sellers. There's actually an episode of the Lucy Desi comedy hour where they play in Las Vegas and, and, you know, Southern Utah, of course, was a big uranium area. And, uh, Lucy wants to go uranium prospecting while Ricky and his band are playing at their show. And, and, uh, so she like goes to a gift shop and gets this novelty newspaper printed up. That's like uranium discovered near Las Vegas. And, and of course, Ricky sees it and is like, this is a fake newspaper. You got this at the gift shop. And he throws it in the trash of the hotel. And then, like, the guy cleaning the hotel finds it. And he's like, oh, man. So there's this huge prospecting rush. 
and everyone's buying Geiger counters, and they the the only uranium they ever end up finding is the little piece of of uranium uh, that they use to calibrate the Geiger counter that Lucy bought. Anyway, hilarious episode. So it, I, I mean, this the 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 atomic stuff is everywhere. You know, that's what people did on their in their spare time, and group of those people, Neil and Maxine McNeese and their friend Lowell Moorfeld, kind of got in on that action as well. Um, Maxine had bought Neil a Geiger counter for Christmas one year, um, for I guess Christmas of 1952. And in September, on September 13th of 1953, they loaded up their Dodge Power Wagon and they went out into the gas hills to do a little bit of prospecting. And So we're back around Riverton, right? Back around Riverton. Okay, we were talking about Southern Utah and hilarious comedy sketches. Now we're back around Riverton. Back around Riverton. Um, In September, they head out. They do a little bit of prospecting, and they may have also been antelope hunting, but some some people say they were, some people say they weren't. I guess that's kind of beside the point. A, A newspaper from the company that they founded describes the outing as follows. It says, Their immediate objective for the day was an isolated area marked on the sketchy map as the Gas Hills a desolate, barren jumble of rolling sagebrush hills and eroded rocks. The only way to get out there was to follow what that same newspaper called a faint wagon and oil truck track, winding its torturous way over sand hills, sagebrush, flats, and dry sand washes. And well, in September, we'll actually talk a lot more about the road that and its development in the gas hills. That's what we're going to talk about when we talk about the uranium industry. So they discovered uranium in in the gas hills area, and it set off a big prospecting boom, and, and and it would become a major industry. Real quick question. What color is uranium? Um, yes. <laughs> yes. And it's kind of the most common answer is, is yellow. You know, that's where yellow cake comes from. It's uh, it's uranium oxide is yellow, but there's a uranium ore is also in a, in a substance called pitch blend, which is like kind of thick and black. Mm. Um. But really, prior prior to the atomic age, uranium ore was actually used as a dye for pottery and things like that to make things yellow. So, so, so I just find it ironic that uranium in its you know raw state is yellow, and we had gold rushes south of us. So uranium oh, yeah. was kind of like Riverton's really dusty gold rush. Yeah, kind of. Um, both pursuing yellow metal. When it's when when uranium is refined into actual metal, it's you know kind of a well, it kind of looks a lot like lead. You can see on wikipedia pictures of uranium and spent uranium and it's just like kind of lead looking but it is uh you know just a a yellow mm. in its concentration in fact the, the term yellow cake going way off the rails here but this is fun <laughs> yellow cake comes from when they were first uh refining uranium into fissionable ore um and i think this was in moab if memory serves me right but i could be wrong about the place they uh didn't have anything to contain the the product of it and so they went to the store and bought some cake pans and they just put it in the cake and it looked like yellow cake so they the name kind of stuck and now it's called yellow cake anyway um about a year after neil and maxine mcneese and their friend Lowell morfeld discovered uranium in the gas hills the riverton ranger wrote the following quote people who have become interested in the fremont county uranium boom are playing part in one chapter of the great story called the atomic age the excitement found in the discovery and conquest of uranium is just as thrilling as the gold rush fever of a century ago and the rewards may be just as lucrative for the successful and heartaches as real for the disappointed so i mean that's definitely definitely true the uranium industry 
um, would would grow and grow. There was a guy from, excuse me, a guy from Rollins named Bob Adams. He was a restaurant owner. Uh, he found more uranium south of of the Gas Hills area in the area of what is now Jeffrey City, what was called Home on the Range from a previous episode. He uh, contracted with the AEC to build a mill. Jeffrey City obviously grew to be a substantial town in Fremont County. Um, in the county, uranium industry would, well, the early 50s, the, the 1950s and the 1960s, the early 1960s were kind of the first real boom. The AEC promised a guaranteed price. They would buy everything that they could get their hands on. Starting in the late 1960s, they kind of said, you know what, we're, uh, I guess more in the mid-1960s, the, the Atomic Energy Commission said, we're uh, getting our stockpiles a little bit high. You guys that already have contracts to produce with us through 1967, we'll extend those contracts through 1970, but at a reduced price. And and so that, that was kind of called the allotment period. The uranium industry declined a little bit through the, the mid-60s through about 1970. And then in 1970, the AEC started to allow private utility companies to run nuclear power plants and I, it was it was no holds barred the uranium industry took off almost exponentially it was just it was a a boom unlike anything that that really probably the county's ever seen before or since uh jeffrey city would grow to a town of about five thousand people riverton especially also grew uh riverton schools expanded central wyoming college was built just huge huge industry and at the end of it Roughly 4,000 people were employed in Fremont County in the uranium industry directly. And that's not counting all the people that had jobs in, you know, the service sector and, and just in, in other things that are a result of the uranium industry. Just the uranium companies employed about 4,000 people. And then in 1979, there was kind of a one-two punch to the industry first. And, and it's, this is one of the weirdest coincidences, I think, in, in, mo in the more recent American history. There was a movie came out called The China Syndrome, which was like an apocalyptic, yeah, just like an apocalyptic movie about a, a nuclear plant meltdown and just all the chaos that would result from that. And then less than two weeks later, the Three Mile Island incident happened where a power plant in Pennsylvania experienced a nuclear meltdown. And as a result, some amount of radioactive gas was released into the atmosphere. Even though there's no demonstrable effect on human life from the Three Mile Island incident, it spooked the entire country. I mean, you got to also remember, we're in the middle of the Cold War, where yeah. we're freaked out about people in other countries, we're having silent arguments with, or not so silent arguments with, that they might get nuclear power, and then we'd all just be blasted off the planet. Yeah, and, and I mean, this is like, also the, it, during the early atomic period that we were talking about earlier, when it was all sunshine and roses, and it was going to cure every, every ill we ever had, people more or less trusted the U.S. government at that point in time. In 1979, you know, we've been in Vietnam for far too long. Watergate scandal had just broken. There was no trust in the U.S. government. So the trust that the U.S. government could make effective policies to basically oversee the uranium industry, I mean, it was non-existent. So just a bunch of, a bunch of factors combined. The uranium industry actually thought that Three Mile Island kind of proved their point that uranium is safe because they're like, look, a little bit of gas escape, but everything kind of worked as planned. The reactor shut down, it's contained, it's safe, and actually to this day, the other reactor at Three Mile Island continues to produce electricity as we speak. So that's what the uranium industry thought, but the American public wasn't sold on it anymore. So in, 19, in 1980, that was actually the peak year for uranium production. 
But in 1981, things changed pretty dramatically for the industry. No new power plants had been ordered. 69 uh, nuclear power plants had been canceled, and 16 of them had been delayed uh, indefinitely. That, combined with the continued strong production in 1980, basically meant that there was a massive glut of uranium on the market, so the price just fell and fell precipitously. In 1981, in Fremont County, uranium industry layoffs started, and they didn't stop. For example, between 1980 and 1983, Jeffrey City shed like 95% of its population. You know, a lot of people left looking for other work in other industries. Basically, the uranium industry died in the country. So that's basically, you know, and then things have stabilized quite a bit in Riverton since. So is uranium still mined around here or is it completely over? Uh, Wyoming is still actually the single largest producer of uranium in the country. Oh, wow. Um, it's not nearly as capital intensive. One of the things that one of the processes that was pioneered in Wyoming is is a process called in situ mining, which is where basically you drill a couple of wells into a uranium form- formation, inject it with a solution that dissolves the uranium, you pump it out, you extract the uranium from this basically water solution, and then you recycle the the chemistry. And that's actually how most uranium is produced in the in the country today. It doesn't require lots of men and machinery. Um, but to kind of give you an idea where the, the state of the industry is today, um, there used to be six operating uranium mills in Fremont County, Wyoming, and at least two more in, in the rest of the state. Today, there is one operating mill in the entire country. It, it, well, like I said, at its peak, there were 4,000 people working in uranium in Fremont County. Today, there's something like, I think it's fewer than 600 nationwide that work in that industry. So it's... We still do produce uranium. Um, There's still roughly 100 nuclear power plants operating in the United States. That's still where we get roughly 20% of our electricity. But we don't have, you know, the mining industry that we had in the 1970s especially anymore. There were actually some settlements in the Gas Hills that at their peak had about 2,000 people in them. And now you drive out to the Gas Hills and there's, I mean, it's nothing. It's, It's literally just sagebrush and then there's like a plaque that talks about... There used to be a lot of stuff that happened out there. You can find old mines and stuff out there, um, but there's you know reclamation work is ongoing on all of those. But yeah, we don't mine the way that we used to. Mm. The 1980s were not were not nice to the Fremont. Community. No, they were not. Um, and I think you know, I guess to kind of wrap it up, one of the the aspects of of this industry that deserves to be talked about is is mine safety and and particularly when you're talking about radioactive materials and unfortunately with radiation the the time between when you're exposed to it and the time when you get sick can be years or even decades and uh there were a lot of people that that later on they developed all sorts of health problems and cancers and stuff from from working in this industry not only in Fremont County but nationwide um and fortunately, there are some programs to kind of help those people out. But mm. but that's a random yeah, question. Is uranium flammable? No. Interesting. It's a metal. So it's... <laughs> In case nobody's realized, Kirsten <laughs> is not a scientist. Although, I guess magnesium is also a metal and you can light that on fire. Yeah. So metal's weird. Um, no, it, it just... But unlike like oil and coal yeah. and things like that, which are other huge parts of Wyoming's industry where... They're very fun. Yeah, you don't. It, uh, uranium doesn't burn. It uh, as it decays, as it, you know, as 
it sheds radioactive whatevers. I, I'm not. I'm not a nuclear physicist or anything like Zach that. Zach isn't so. a scientist either. We're not scientists, but my dumb guy understanding of it is is that it you know once it's refined, especially it generates heat just kind of by itself as it as it decays, as it it sheds subatomic particles, and then they use that heat to heat water and that water turns into steam and that spins turbines and that's how they create electricity out of it and one of the major advantages of atomic power is that it's carbon neutral it doesn't produce any co2 you see those big cooling towers like on the simpsons and they always look like they have smoke belching out of them but it's just it's just steam and it's not i mean it's water vapor so atomic power produces compared to other industries that produce electricity atomic power produces like a very very tiny amount of highly toxic waste whereas a lot of other industries produce a lot of much less toxic waste mm. you know so it's, it's a balancing it's kind act of a, it's it a pros a and cons act. kind of thing but the point of this podcast was to kind of tell people who might not be familiar with riverton's industry history about riverton's industry history which happened to focus a lot on the uranium mines that were around here so we'll talk more actually about this industry in september although who knows what else there is to say just kidding there's a lot but we're now at like a half hour well then we should probably close all right so upcoming events summer has definitely started for fremont county museum systems and we have lots of events for you guys to hear about and hopefully participate in we've got uh, three main series of events. Our first series is the Bailey Tire and Auto and Pit Stop Travel Center's sponsored Children's Discovery Series. Our first event in that is actually this coming weekend, May 11th, at the Riverton Museum from 2 to 4 p.m. And we're going to be doing some spool knitting. Ooh. And I don't know if, if you don't know what spool knitting is. It's you get a spool and you put some spikes or nails or something in it, and you. Uh, it's like advanced braiding. Yeah. You turn skinny yarn into fat yarn, and then you use fat yarn to make a rug or something. Cost for that's $2 per kid. It should be a lot of fun. We're looking forward to that. And then the Dubois Museum has a series of kids' exploration programs coming up in uh, partnership with the National Bighorn Sheep Center, also located in Dubois Museum on June 5th and June 12th. And the other two Wednesdays in June, uh, we're having Kids Corner, which is a various educational programs for kids and they are free and open to the public then on june 8th at one o'clock p.m there is gold panning days at the lander pioneer museum and i guess kids are gonna learn how to pan for gold i guess maybe your maybe your 10 year old will be the uh the next person to strike it rich the museum might want to claim some of that then <laughs> it is a museum hosted uh event yeah. Uh, and spots are limited, so make sure you call and get your, your name in quick. Our next series of events is our Wyoming Community Bank Discovery Speaker Series. And the first one of those is on May 16th at the Pioneer Museum. Our collections manager at the Pioneer Museum, Robin Allison, is going to teach us all about how to clean beaded artwork, beaded artifacts. You know, anything that's got beads on it, we'll teach you how to keep it in pristine shape. Um, supplies are limited to 25 people, and that is from 7 to 9 p.m. again on May 16th at the Pioneer Museum. And so on May 30th at 7 p.m., the Pioneer Museum is hosting a speaker series by Dr. Salmon Ariana uh, from the University of Wyoming. So if that was pronounced wrong, blame Zach. Um, he, the doctor is going to be talking about oil industry in Wyoming's past and future. So that's May 30th at 7 p.m. 
Um, and then here at the Riverton Museum on June 13th at 6.30 p.m., we are hosting Robert King, who's presenting a talk called Kettles and Clackers, which is all about the history of oil refineries in Wyoming. So a lot of stuff about oil in our Discovery Speaker Series in late May and early June. That should be a lot of, you know, should be really interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, those industries are part of our history. Yeah. So, and then our final series of events is sponsored by the Wind River Visitors Council, um, and that first event is May 18th at 10 a.m. The Lander Pioneer Museum is hosting a historic downtown walking tour of Lander. So it's two hours long, meet at the Pioneer Museum, and it is open to the public. On June 1st here at the Riverton Might Museum, we're meeting at 9 o'clock a.m., and we're going to walk down the railroad track to the Thai Treating Plant. And... Uh... We'll learn all about the Thai industry a little bit later on. That's part of both Dubois and Riverton's in, uh, industrial history, but we're we're going to let Dubois have that one. Yeah, because it's um, awesome. Anyway, uh, sorry. On June 11th, the Dubois Museum is hosting our first historic guest ranch tour at the Ramshorn Guest Ranch. It's $8 per person. Spots are limited, but it's going to be it's going to be a great trek and a great experience to see some of the history of the guest ranching of Dubois. And then finally, on June 15th, the Pioneer Museum in Lander is hosting an Atlantic City Cemetery Trek. And so if you guys get the chance, definitely contact our museums, check out our Facebook pages for these events. Speaking of Facebook, um, if you have, if you liked what you heard today on this podcast, like us on Facebook at Rediscover the Winds, a Wyoming history podcast. If you've already followed us on our various platforms like Stitcher, YouTube, iTunes, etc., thank you. Your support means the world to us, and we hope you guys have seriously enjoyed what we have been talking about today. So thanks again for listening to the Wyoming History Podcast. I'm your host, Kirsten, from the Dubois Museum and Wind River Historical Center. And I'm Zach from the Riverton Museum. And we look forward to continuing this adventure to rediscover the winds with you next time.